Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. What did you want to be when you were a kid when somebody asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Veterinarian. Veterinarian. Yeah, a couple. Rihanna. A teacher and a mom. Awesome. Awesome. POTUS. POTUS. Jimmy, going for the top. <laughs> going for the top. POTUS, POTUS, yes. Um, well, it, it's interesting to me when you think about that question, which I have a two and a half year old, I posed that question to him. I said, what do you want to be, Ward? And if you kind of dissect that question, it's what do you want to be? It's an identity question, right? It's not... Uh, you know, what kind of friends do you want to have when you grow up? What uh, mark do you want to leave on society? It's who do you want to be or what do you want to be when you grow up? It always implies your career, your vocation, your work, and it implies so many steps in between to get there. This semester, we are going to talk about work and we're going to talk about rest, two things that often get set at a dichotomy, a dualism between the two, right? Uh, what, is, what is the phrase, um, have a social life, have uh, good grades, or sleep? Choose, what, is it two, choose one? Yeah, right, you can't have it all, is, is, is what we all have come to realize. I think our seniors would attest to that. You can't have it all. Um, this it has everything to do with so many minutes and moments in our lives. And it's good to think theologically or just from the Bible to hear what God has to say about these topics. Um, work is such a big deal, in case you haven't noticed. Um, and it, when, when I say work, by the way, I'm including kind of all of it, right? Your, your internships, your Starbucks job, your, your studies, of course, right now, that's your main work as a student. Um, it's such a big deal that people equate it with an addiction, right? I mean, you can get such a high off of achievement that you can be called a workaholic. You know, it's just like better than any drug. You're a workaholic, you're addicted to work. And actually recently, uh, someone started describing it as a religion, he calls it workism. Uh, Derek Thompson in The Atlantic describes uh, workism as uh, when work becomes a kind of religion, Promising identity, transcendence, and community. Workism, identity, transcendence, and community. Right, so if if we're getting into the realm of religion, it's only right that as Christians we start to think about what does God have to say? What does it mean to be a Christian and work and have a vocation and think about rest? Um, The title of the series is Redeeming Work and receiving rest. The first uh, six weeks or so, we're going to talk about work in particular, and then last six weeks, we're going to talk about rest. Um, And there's a lot to say about both. We're going to ask God to open our eyes to see his vision for it. Let me pray that he would do that now. Heavenly Father, we just ask that our eyes would be open. We ask that your word would speak. We ask that our hearts would be soft and our ears would be open to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I want to bring to your attention three tendencies that I think Christians have when it comes to thinking about work and rest. Um, These three tendencies are as follows. Um, A dualism or dualistic tendency. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, When we think of spiritual things or religious things, we kind of relegate it to the private sphere, don't we? It's kind of compartmentalized to maybe what you do on a Sunday or what you do in private or your own thoughts or beliefs. And then everything else we kind of call, well, that's, that's everything else. That's earthly things, right? It's, it's what you do for your day job. It's, um, it's the stuff you watch on TV. It's how many hours of sleep that you get. But we often have this dualism where we separate these two things, right? Now, um, maybe you saw the name of the series and you saw that we were going to talk about work and rest and maybe you immediately brought to mind some work that you have to do, maybe tonight some CS homework and it's like, okay, is Nathan going to give me some sort of cheap, quick way to get your CS homework done? No, the Bible does not have it. I'm sorry. Uh, That's not what I'm suggesting the Bible is going to say or God has to say, but I am suggesting that has a lot to say about what's going on in your heart and your mind as you walk to, your, to the library, open up your books, and study, and do your work. It has a lot to say about your heart and your soul when it comes to your work. Um, why you do it, and especially for whom you do it. So that's this dualistic tendency we separate Earthly things, which would include work and rest and spiritual things. And ne'er the twain shall they meet, right? So we're going to break up that dualism uh, this semester. The, the second thing is what I'm calling an assimilation tendency. Um, because of the dualism uh, that's at play when we think about Christianity or religious things, we often think it doesn't have anything to do with my vocational goals my studies, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to being a Christian and being kind of in the workplace, in the classroom, going about your daily life because you've separated your faith from your work, you end up having a vacuum. There's a void of authority and there's a void of leadership. So what do you do? Where do you go to tell you, to give you advice for what career path you should take? Where do you go uh, to understand uh, the problem, the, the solution to an ethical dilemma that you might face in the workplace. Well, some authority is going to tell you that. They're going to guide you. And often it's kind of whatever works, what's, whatever is around us. Maybe it's our parent or a, a self-help book or just whatever the person next to you is doing. We kind of assimilate into the flow of our culture. We, it's easier to kind of just float along. Um, this assimilation tendency means that, that God has nothing to do with our work. And like we said, we don't want that. So the third tendency that we have is a tendency towards expressive individualism. This guy named Robert Bella came up with this phrase that he thinks kind of uh, sums up our times and sums up 
kind of the highest aim of individuals in our society today, that it's about expressing yourself, being true to yourself. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Kind of, it's, that's self, uh, the actualization, it's expressive individualism. And it's focused on yourself. And of course, you, you eventually think about your, your community and what that means to the world, but it starts with, and it even ends with, yourself. And there's a real trap there. Uh, in a time in my life, I was uh, unemployed after the, the Great Recession of 2008. Um, and there was about six months where I had no job. And it was, it was a humiliating time in my life. Uh, I had to uh, show up and collect the unemployment checks. Which nobody ever wants to do that. I hope no one ever has to do that. But this question was just blazing in my mind. What do I want to be? What do I want to do? And when I looked inside myself, there was just chaos. I had no idea. <laughs> I was a puddle of confusion. I was a mess. But freedom came when I started to care a little less gradually about what I wanted and turn to scripture and turn to God in prayer and ask him, God, what do you want me to do? How should I spend my life, which is ahead of me? How do you describe water to a fish? Have you ever thought about that? How do you describe to someone who's just swimming in this ocean, but they don't even know what an ocean is without being cruel and, you know, taking them out when they're flopping around? They're like, oh, okay, so this is different. Um, you, you, you can't. It's really hard to. But in order for us to kind of, uh, kind of fix what's wrong with our attitudes and our tendencies towards work, we kind of need to get our perspective changed. We kind of need to try to understand what is water. What are we swimming in? And in order to do that, I'm going to go to this second passage here, which we didn't read. And there's some complicated names, and it's kind of long, so you'll know why. But this is going to kind of be a story, a narrative, to help us kind of get outside of our heads, to get a new perspective on our work. So it's a story that's very far removed from our time and place. It occurs in 605 BC in ancient Persia, uh, which is now the, the country of Iraq. And it involves um, a story about this man named Daniel. And he had three friends. And Daniel and his friends were, were Jewish young men, and they lived in a time of Jewish exile. King Nebuchadnezzar had just conquered Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And it meant that all that he wanted to do was to uh, show his dominance and his control and his authority over this newly conquered people. And what that meant was erasing their identity, erasing their cultural and religious identity. And so part of what he did is he, he brought the, the uh, most special items that were in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, in the Jewish temple, and he brought those into his temple in Babylon. It was kind of expressing his dominance, his control. And um, this man apparently had some, some job openings in his court. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar um, got onto Indeed or LinkedIn and put out a bulletin for uh, four new positions in the king's court. And he wanted the cream of the crop. And he especially wanted these new uh, Jewish people to participate in his 
uh, court. So these four dudes, uh, one named Daniel, one named um, Hananiah, and one named uh, Mishael, and one named Azariah. And the first thing he did, remember he wanted to erase their identity, erase their culture, is he changed their name. Belteshazzar is Daniel's new name. Uh, Shadrach is Mishael's new name. Meshach is, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Shadrach is Hananiah's new name. Meshach is Mishael's new name. And Abednego is Azariah's new name. Can you imagine a, a, a way to just give you an identity crisis? Is somebody just like, whoosh, here's your new name. And it's something completely foreign to you. Um, so here they were. They were the new people in the court of the king of Babylon. And Daniel and his friends loved God. And they knew that a lot had been taken away from them. Their home, their place of worship, um, probably their jobs, maybe even their families. But the one thing they knew that could not be taken away from them was their devotion to Yahweh, the one true God. And so uh, they were in this training program as new employees, and they were brought into this, uh, this court, and they were given this rich and luxurious food to eat. And all the new employees of the court um, were given this wine, this meat, these grains, and these fruit. And Daniel and his friends decided, you know what, we're, we're going we're gonna to kind of demonstrate or display that we don't need everything that the king is giving us. There was also some possibilities that some of this food was uh, sacrificed to idols or there could have been some things going on like that. But, but what they wanted to show is that we don't need, you know, if, if you think of that menu, right, the, the wine and the meat are the delicacies. And they said, we don't need the king's delicacies. We can train and we can do well. And they said uh, to, to the man that was in charge of them, can we abstain? Can we fast? Can we show our devotion to our God by doing this? And he was like, well, if you don't eat of this, I might get beheaded tomorrow. So let's do a 10-day trial, see how this goes. And, and Daniel was like, yeah, and if at the end of 10 days we are weak and disheveled and we're fallen behind in the training, you can do whatever you want. Like you can punish us, whatever. And at the end of 10 days, it turns out what happened was that these four men, Daniel, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were 10 times more fit, 10 times more advanced in their studies, which is probably a lot of scholarly studies like languages and, 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 and arts and stuff. Um, they were 10 times, not just uh, greater than the people in the court, but in all the kingdom. They excelled. And what they showed in that is that their devotion to God not only cannot be taken away from them, but God has power that supersedes Nebuchadnezzar's power. There are about three things that I think we learn from this story, and I want to relate it back to these tendencies I talked about earlier. You see, Daniel and his friends didn't have a dualistic view of their faith. The very uh, things that they ate, the things that they said, the things that they did in their vocation, it mattered uh, to God. 
And so they lived their lives in a way that wasn't dualistic. Their daily lives mattered to him. Uh, secondly, instead of assimilating, right, all that King Nebuchadnezzar want, wanted was for them to forget who they were, forget their identity, forget that they were Jews, and become like the Babylonians. Uh, instead of assimilating, they went against the flow of culture. And they said their loyalty to God is what matters most. But more so, instead of this expressive individualism kind of going at it on their own, they were in solidarity. I mean, these guys, I don't know if they even knew each other before, but by the end of this, that 10-day fast, I bet they were brothers bonded. They were in solidarity with each other in their faith, right? Um, their obedience to God, they, they weren't in competition with one another, but they're in solidarity and unity with one another. So I want to bring this back to the 21st century. What does this mean? Uh, the vision, as we kind of introduce our semester, the vision that God has for thinking about our work and rest is a holistic one. It's a holistic one. It's integrated as opposed to dualistic. Um, your faith matters to your work and your work matters to your faith. God knows that you need meaning in your work. He knows that um, we can't uh, go about our work. And a lot of people work in really hard areas of society. And if they don't have purpose, if they don't have meaning, uh, they'll burn out immediately. Um, but what, what sin does is it disintegrates us. Right? Our faith and work are just completely two different things, and we can't think about um, them together. Just like Daniel uh, and his friends, they were wholly devoted to God, and that meant they didn't assimilate to culture. Um, our verse in Colossians says, uh, as Paul kind of exhorts the people, he says, uh, do not work for others. Do not be a people pleaser, but work to the Lord Christ. I mean, that, that's a radical shift in mentality. Don't go and do your studies for your professor, for your friends, for your parents, even for yourself. Go and do them for God. What the world wants from us, what sin asks for us, is that our devotion be placed in work itself, in workism. And no matter uh, how far we go in our careers, it will always disappoint. Because work is not God and cannot be God for us. Only God can be God. The last thing, um, instead of expressive individualism, we have a model of working for God, others, and yourself at once. No, I'm not, I'm not um, coming back on what I was just saying. Um, this is beyond self-actualization. Right? This is your work mattering to your neighborhood, to your community, to your society, something we all want our work to do. This is a vision that God has for your work. Um, a lot of people, when they have these existential crises in their careers, they think, oh, well, if I want my, my career to matter, it has to be a nonprofit. 
I have to be a missionary. I have to be in ministry, something like that. Even non-Christian, uh, so to speak, or kind of mundane um, jobs can be glorifying to God and equally as glorifying to God as something like being a pastor or any other line of work. Um, guys, I, I don't know where you're at, and we're going to have some time for discussion to kind of share and, and, be, and, and be honest with each other about where we're at. But the biggest uh, thing that I think you'll see when you make this shift, when you say, I'm not doing my work for others, I'm not even doing it for myself, I'm doing it for God, your audience changes. Um, your audience becomes an audience of one, God. And this is the way to freedom. Freedom from burnout, freedom from workism, workaholism. Uh, it's not based on just some quick tips. It's not based on just some, hey, be mindful, you know, uh, find something meaningful. Uh, this is not just my opinions, you know, my life experience of 37 years. No, this is a radical shift in perspective where God becomes the center of our work. Colossians says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What I pray is that the Lord this semester reorients us to him, that we can see our work as a way to worship, not work, but worship God, the only one worthy of our worship. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would set us free from captivity to uh, what often feels like slavery to our work, to our studies, to the daily grind. Lord, set us free to see that only in worshiping you and living all of our lives for you can we experience freedom. We pray that you would do that in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.